0: Welcome to the New York City Healing Collective, where we amplify insights from people doing work at the intersection of healing, wellness, and societal transformation. This is your host, Angel Acosta. Let's dig in. Today we have Brother Steven Uh, Murphy Shigematsu, trained and taught in East Asia, Asian medicine, yoga, and psychology in Japan, and at Harvard University and the University of Tokyo. Uh, His teaching and research at Stanford University balances Eastern and Western ways of knowing, doing, and being in designing gentle, healing, inclusive, and educational spaces. So that's Brother Stephen. Stephen and I met about four or five years ago at the uh, Multiversity, to be specific, but... Even before that, we were part of a planning process to bring a conference together that uh, I think the theme was radicalizing contemplative education. And uh, it, it's a it's yeah, it's a pleasure to have him with us today. Hello, Stephen.
1: Hello there. Good to be here.
0: Yes. Yes. You've written two several uh, different texts, uh, one of which I read recently was uh, from mindfulness to heartfulness. Uh, Transforming Self and Society with Compassion. Mm -hmm. And uh, I spent some time uh, reading that one. uh, So I'll probably end up asking you to tell us the inspiration for that book, kind of guiding us through, obviously, the wisdom that comes out of your grandmother and her rearing you.
2: Well, I think I had been living in Japan and working there for quite a few years. And I came over on a sabbatical. uh, But I found that there was something here that really I thought was uh, a good balance to what I had been doing in Japan, but also, um, you know, in some ways I felt like the, uh, there were a lot of things to learn here because of the, the, I guess, the kinds of diversity here compared to in Japan. And um, But as I was teaching, I started to feel like there was, um, even at a place like Stanford, which is, you know, supposedly one of the great universities of the world, that there was Um, the kind of teaching that was going on was not meeting the needs of students and that Mm. many students were saying that they were, uh, you know, were brought into Stanford as part of a diversity movement, but didn't feel like they were actually been included and that Mm. they, uh, and that they were um, feeling very isolated, very uh, disconnected, Mm -hmm. uh, to themselves you know being separated from their own communities and then trying to find communities at stanford and then uh, feeling disconnected from other people and from their um i guess from a spiritual life so a sense that they really wanted spirituality but that it was not something that was offered mm. in the university and so that was That was the inspiration to offer something uh, that met more the needs of especially those students who had felt marginalized and uh, oppressed by the institution to find Mm -hmm. a place where they could come and be with others in community and feeling like this was a place that they could make into their own place to be and that it would move beyond this mindfulness, which I think had become uh, confined to a sense of uh, being limited to the individual's sphere of stress reduction and taking care of yourself, uh, but not something that would go from there to the next step of, well, how do we, how does this apply to how we connect to others, and how do we connect to build healing communities? And so that was really the the motivation for doing that within this very rigid academic environment.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that, Stephen. You know, I hear too a couple things: the the, the power of the notion of heartfulness. You know, moving away from um, mindfulness in terms of its focus on the mind and that classic um, Cartesian dualism that still affects the academy around dividing the body and the mind, but moving closer to the heart. Um, I just really appreciate those moves on on conceptual levels, Um, but also the healing part. Um, I want to read a a quote from uh, the book and the earlier pages. You say, uh, to me, healing is remembering and embracing those memories shrouded in darkness, thereby becoming more whole as they emerge into the light. Uh, I I surface that only because throughout the book, you have these different principles and practices but this um beautiful kind of insight in terms of sitting with our whole selves and how combining that um through the instrument or the vehicle of heartfulness we can we can actually experience uh healing
2: yeah i think that some of that comes from my own background in um you know personally you know just cuz my family comes from different cultures and the and um, but also, I pursued that in, in terms of my studies, I studied Chinese medicine in Japan, mm-hmm. which had a you know it was very deep in Eastern philosophy, and it really has a very holistic sense about the human being, and that uh, are it really emphasizes balance over the sense of uh, good and bad and Ooh. sick and uh, healthy. and it, it, it recognizes how all of us are uh both, all of those things at the same time and that we can't uh, like we do in western psychology divide mm-hmm. the normal and the abnormal um and we do that in ways that you know is very arbitrary according to who's who's making the manual <laughs> and <laughs> deciding on those things but uh what i i feel like that basis of um in terms of holism is something that still Guides me with this, uh, the image I have, of, which was in another book of mine, was called "When Half Is Whole," mm. has uh, that image of a half moon, and how we often uh, we mm. may be born whole, but we gradually become fragmented and beaten down by mm. uh, being part of these societies that we're in, and we start to think of ourselves as far less than what we are. Mm. But the part that's still there in the shadows and in the shades it could be a lot of um darkness in terms of our our traumas our wounds our mm. parts of us that we've been told are not good enough and uh and parts of us that uh could also be though the joys and, and the incredible uh you know happiness that we've have experienced at times in our lives but which have we've also lost some touch with so i think of that whole concept of remembering you know mm. really remembering really remembering who we are, who we were born to be, mm-hmm. and to really do what uh we can in terms of our own individual will, but also in terms of you know accepting what comes to us, the opportunities in terms of making ourselves as as whole as we can become in the in that imagery of healing
0: is beginning. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I appreciate that. And I kind of hear um on top of, you know, the ways in which we experience fragmentation in, in ourselves and uh, not feel, creating a conditions where we don't feel whole or complete or even just enough, you know, just feeling enough in a, in a society, especially in the one that we are currently geographically in where materialism is really um, kind of dominant as a way of, of being. But I think I also hear that through heartfulness and the pedagogy that you kind of talk about, there's a sense that there's a connectedness, interconnectivity with all life, yeah. uh, which, which is important, I think, to point out and to surface so that there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a wholeness that, that can be filled within yeah. by embracing all the parts of ourselves. But then another step is to know that you are intricately connected to everything else.
2: Yeah, otherwise mindfulness ends with your own. I've reduced my stress a little bit now I can do it. <laughs>
0: I'm good to go. <laughs> yeah
2: <laughs> The hell with everybody else. <laughs> like, I'm just I'm, uh, just another step towards your more achievement and more success as I define it. But if you can connect people, see the that's the big surprise I feel when we do contemplative practice is that mm-hmm. people are pretty you know understanding. they're lucky I'm more in touch with who I am. Mm-hmm. But they're always surprised by, wow, this also, I'm also more connected to others. Mm-hmm. I see others with, with fresh eyes. And I, we often do a ritual in my classes, which is somewhat based in the, the Hindu principle of namaste. Yeah. So um, we introduce a South African Zulu word, the, mm-hmm. the albona.
0: Yes, albona.
2: So it's done with that. We go around and we just say, I see you. And the mm-hmm. other person can answer, I, I am here. I I see you or I am here, but some kind of a a brief acknowledgement that we exist Mm -hmm. and We are existing the mystery that we're existing together in this moment and acknowledging that just with a brief uh, Look into the other's eyes and a brief greeting to say I am here and I see you and that that uh, that can be an amazing step that we just don't often take in daily life to acknowledge the other human beings around us and what how much they're doing for us just to allow us to to survive and to thrive and that uh, but that connection you know i've had people say like oh i realize there are no enemies
0: Mm. that's simple simple yeah so it's almost yeah so it's almost like creating the containers for us to just be more human um, or just be, or just be human in the first place. Um, I, I kind of with a kind of a ritual like that uh, when you're teaching in a higher education context, it can be really powerful for folks to really demarcate and and and, and clearly point to kind of the beginning of a sacred space. Yeah, um, and so often in our classes we jump into uh, the analysis of knowledge or the critiquing of knowledge and to, to open class or open uh conversation in such a way it just changes the social fabric i think
2: yeah i think it really does what you just said it it just makes us more human Mm -hmm. which i've been warned is not part of education (laughs) (laughs) we're not supposed to be human i said they told me we don't do that you when you cross the threshold into the classroom you leave yourself at the door Mm. And I said, "Wow, I can't do that." You know, <laughs> I can't do that. and I found that you know, but I've been doing this for so many years. I just find that it's um, it always works if you can bring yourself into that place as a human being. Uh, others respond, and they yeah. more human too, and they will bring themselves in in a way that's vulnerable and humble, and then that just forms the whole foundation for. Uh, relating to other people, connecting to other people over in that space of imperfection and vulnerability and common humanity.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and I'm just thinking about this idea of of leaving yourself at the door. (laughs) As as either we teach in classrooms or we facilitate experiences out in the world uh, as as consultants, Uh, that same kind of ethos is used in research uh, with the kind of the call for objectivity. Like remove yourself, remove your personal subjectivity from the observation of whatever it's the participants or the research context. But in reality, you're literally implicated and imbricated in the research process. So yeah. that that process is so intimate, intimate in a sense. So it's how how could I leave myself at the door when I need myself to be in the room to yeah. conduct the research or to conduct you know the class? I, I only raise that because. I'm actually um, in the data collection, data analysis process of my dissertation, and I've been looking at indigenous ways of conducting research. Yeah, and in those traditions, there is no separation. Everything is a relationship. The whole, yeah. the whole process. Yeah. In fact, in fact, to separate yourself or to try to separate the subjects or the participants is, is to inflict that violence. Yeah, on the process.
2: Yeah, the whole concept of what is objective research—you know—pervades mm-hmm. per- the, these academies here that we're involved in. But it's really something that I think the more that we can I- introduce indigenous perspectives, mm-hmm. what is actually, how do you, what is knowledge, how do you gain knowledge, and that mm. uh, that the intimacy of that uh, relationship between the healer and the healed, and the the seeker and the um, those who are seeking uh, mm-hmm. for knowledge, I think, is something that we have a lot to. What, the way we offer that in the academy is very cold and very rigid, and that's yeah. uh, something I've tried to move away from, or, and really value the stories in in a narrative sense as stories as having the same power of uh, of being data for yeah. Well, in the same way of something that we think of as more objective, like a
0: survey uh questionnaire yes, yes, you you allude to stories in 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 the in that this book on harmfulness a lot um as you were trying to kind of pinpoint what what you were really trying to talk about, you know stories as the and and narratives you said is the fundamental, really core. Uh, phenomenon, but that you know others have tried to call it emotional intelligence or or mindfulness, and what you 're trying to weave is like this idea of heartfulness as a way of surfacing uh stories in yourself in others in the classrooms um so I just appreciate the text i i later i, I want to kind of invite you to think about rigor this idea of, of whether this whether this work is rigorous enough right um, um right. and i and I, I want to say that it is. You know, that's so why I take you seriously. I take your work seriously because I think it, it surfaces some of the most rigorous ideas that need to surface right now.
2: Yeah, that's, you know, to be able to offer the kinds of courses I do at a place as conservative as Stanford is meant that I've had to meet very uh, difficult standards of what is considered rigorous. <laughs> <laughs> and I've done that, but I've also uh, started to... to uh back off in a sense of making my own criticism of what that means and then offering something different which is if you look at the word rigorous you look at its latin origins you're you're encountering a great deal of rigidity <laughs> rigor mortis right <laughs> <laughs> you know r- lack of ability to uh, be flexible right? mm. and, and to me that it also can be oppressive you know that r- rigorous yeah. and me is something that is very cold oppressive stiff Unyielding, uh, and so I'm. I'm thinking, you know, maybe I don't want to be so rigorous. Maybe I'd rather <laughs> be uh, vigorous, you know. And hey. So vigorous has a much more a sense of being vital, you know, being mm-hmm. alive and with vitality. And so I've started to answer critics more with that. So how about if we're less less rigorous and more vigorous, and that would be capture what I think that. Students are really looking for which is they want to feel some life in what they're being taught and they want to know How does that relate to my life? How could I become more alive by what you're teaching me? And that's not going to be if if it's done in a very, you know, stiff and oppressive way It's got to be something that's alive right in this moment with whatever knowledge we can get from everything that's happening around us in the world
0: Yes, yes, thank you. Thank you for that uh, framing You know, of like uh, playing with rigor versus uh, vigor and like the sense of vivacity that can come from uh, creating conditions in uh, the classroom or in your learning kind of context that bring people alive. It kind of reminds me of uh, a colleague of mine, Dr. Imodino. She's over at USC. She does a lot of research on social learning. And uh, really quickly, what her research points to, she's been looking at um, brain images and she's been able to see which parts of the brain light up when people are engaging in the deepest uh, learning experiences. Like they, they feel like they're really learning something at that moment. Yeah. And she observed that uh, the, the, the part of the brain that is um, more active, is she calls, they call it the substrate. And she found that odd because that part of the brain is in charge, lights up or activates or is in charge of, of, of keeping us alive. Ah. Oh. And I, I thought that it, yeah. was, it was such a simple finding, but what, what proof, what more proof do you need that when people feel the most, like they're most alive in the classroom in terms of learning, mm. the parts of the system that light up are the ones that control our most fundamental function a function which is to keep us alive yeah yeah yeah. so i found that really powerful and connected to what you were pointing to um yeah you know there's think about that and 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 there's so much in the text that because i do want to see what you think about you know you talk about beginner's mind vulnerability authenticity connectedness listening acceptance Gratitude and lastly service as like th- as like these kind of organizing principles yeah. for like a way of heartfulness and you 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 you're very clear that there are many other principles, but that these kind of are the ones that you can contain in this text yeah um could you tell us a little bit about uh for today's conversation, just two you know definitely a beginner's mind
2: yeah i think and if I go back to your original question, if I had been more honest or more forthcoming there i think i would have said that i i developed all this partly <clears throat> in response to the that there were a lot of young people around me who were clearly very depressed mm. anxious, and and many of are taking their own lives you know we had, yes we had a rash of teenagers walking in front of moving trains not too far from my house and it was wow. it was wow. really in response to that sense of Desperation that some of these young people were feeling to think what what do I need to what can I do as this basically a teacher you know a counselor yeah who um, what is it what kind of message could I possibly give to people and I think it was simply that basic sense of what you described as can you just come alive can you be alive and then yeah. trust that somehow it's going to be all right you know that somehow. Mm we'll make it we'll make it together if we go together you fall down we'll pick you up i fall down people people will pick us up and we'll just keep moving and trust that there's some value just in being alive and doing the best we can while we're here and uh that's really how it started i think in the sense that i really wanted to know where does that basic desire to live Come from, and how can we possibly influence another people, another person to to want to live? And I thought about, you know, Howard Thurman's uh, that that statement he made that I use all the time with young people. You don't think about what's the world needs the most. Think about just feel. When are you alive? You know, what makes Mm. you come alive? What makes you feel that you're really alive? And then do it. Mm. You got to do it too. You can't, you know, say yeah, I feel good, but no, go, you got to go do that. And because that's what the world needs, people who have come alive and are really living, you know, with that sense of, and I think it comes from beginner's mind, you know, that sense mm. of, wow, I'm your eyes open, you think, wow, okay, I've been bitching and moaning, and mm. about feeling bad and feeling like I'm victimized, which I am, but that's not getting me anywhere, you know, I've, I've got to really just come alive and feel like, wow, it's, I'm the mystery of being here and what can I do about it and yeah. to, just to get into that sense of beginner's mind and that other what comes with that is that Japanese phrase ichigo ichie yep like you know this is once every moment is just going to come around once and if <laughs> you don't know, if you can grab it you better grab it and mm-hmm. make the most out of it cuz it's not going to come again and so i think just those kind of basic principles are what i where i start and i find that that's Students are so grateful just to be in that kind of a place where it's, they can just be there. They can just be, just kind of reconnect to who they really are and to feel that sense of being a beginner again, the lightness that comes with that. And then the, the feeling of gratitude just to be alive.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's something about uh, the beginner's mind uh, that kind of probably even activates the inner child. Um, when we're, you know, that curiosity, that sense that, uh, you know, you're beginning again to learn and to kind of take in information and not take our ways of being and seeing for granted. Yeah. Um, there's something that, I think there's something to the beginner's mind that opens up, opens us up to like uh, kind of a more, not an not a innocence per se, but a curious like approach, like our inner child.
2: Yeah. That that's in my book too about the, one of the most influential experiences of my whole life as a teacher was one of my first ones in a public school in Cambridge Mass when I was a substitute and I been mm-hmm. there and you know, you know, it's so hard to be a substitute teacher <laughs> in, inner city school and i'm not a very tough guy so it was rough and i went in there one day what can i do and i just went in and i started speaking japanese and Mm. you know and the kids started listening and they were saying what's wrong with you man (laughs) (laughs) what the and what what are you speaking i said japanese they said really they said yeah don't you guys know japanese and say no no teach us man so we started to, to learn japanese and then like um the next day I went to the same school and the teacher said who's that uh, who was paying attention you know and I said oh, this kid Ricardo he was just mm. totally good He says, Ricardo he that kid he never pays attention he just sits in the back <laughs> you know he, he's not very smart and all I said well he sure was hot yesterday and I mm. the story goes on where I I was walking through this that part of the city maybe a couple of years later and I hear this voice you know hey mister and I keep walking, but I hear, no, hey, mister. And it's kind of a cute voice. So I turn around and there's a kid. I don't recognize him. And he says, hey, mister, you're the guy who taught us Japanese. Wow. And I thought, man, you know, this meant something so much to this kid, this one day in his life in which he, I believe, had beginner's mind. It was like, mm. he's not looking at me like I'm stupid and I'm so far behind anyway. I just got to put on this attitude like I don't care. And Mm. he was you know suddenly he had the chance this is he's fresh with everybody else and he was curious and how do you write Mm. my sister's name how do you write my mom's name how do you say that Mm. and to me it just taught me you know my eyes to the power of beginner's mind and how it's not just something for the you know the privileged kids at a place like Stanford but yeah kids need it everywhere in all different levels of of education
0: yeah yeah I those moments i live for those moments where students become alive um there's also something about beginner's mind um on both ends you know and on the behalf of the student but also the the teacher that there's a quality of presence like you you're really present uh to to the moment to what is you know ichigo ichie you there's there's something about being really present that allows us to kind of lean in uh to the moment and to to connect with each other
2: yeah you know, I I had a, a football player here at Stanford who was like so good. He was all American, and he he, he uh, after my first class, he wrote to me and he said, you know, I usually don't go to my classes. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I can just get a you know a recording and I listen to the lecture. But you brought yourself to the class in a way you were present. And I said, I got to I got to honor that and respect that. that if you're going to do it, I got to come to and be present there too. And I thought, wow, mm. that's you know the amazing effect the teacher can have just by being there and really being there, and a student can feel that and say, "Okay, I'm going to bring myself to that."
0: Hmm. Yeah. Two. Well, two things come to mind with that. Uh, first, like sometimes how rare it is for people to show up, and, and mainly because of how technological our society has become, where our our attention is so mediated and mm. um, fragmented that when we even show up to particular rooms whether it be a classroom or a boardroom you know our devices are calling our attention and we often escape to those devices or to other thoughts so how difficult it is to even to be present and to even show up to the room fully yeah and i don't i don't know if you've all come across the work of um the zen priest um zenju earthland emmanuel she wrote
1: oh yeah
0: yeah, she's wow, a wonderful writer, wrote a wonderful book that she just published called Sanctuary.
1: Uh-huh. But the
0: one before that, because um, I was reading Heart, The Way of Heartfulness, and I was also thinking about her. She wrote a book called The Way of Tenderness. Mm. And, oh, my God, Stephen, it, it's it's so powerful. It really kind of, if if I had unlimited uh, time, I would just sit with your text and hers, <laughs> um because she points to um a similar way uh the same way of being tender and and what what happens when you are vulnerable Mm. authentic and present to not just your own pain
1: Mm. and the
0: pain of others but to all of all of what comes and surfaces in our like dynamic human bodies. she talks a lot about that Mm. and how that can bring a sense of aliveness even when The conditions are dire and dark. Yeah.
2: I was just thinking how one connection that we had was through the work of uh, people like Arthur Zayens. Yes. um, And his, um, what really struck me was when he talked about what he called gentle empiricism Mm. uh, that sense of becoming one with the object of study and how Mm. that. A gentle empiricism that was in not like the violent reductionist way of studying something, but it was a way of if you think about the origins of the word gentle yeah sense of oneness right Connecting mm. a sense of oneness to whether it's a, a human another human being or whether it's uh, a plant or some you know I've heard these like nobel prize winner he quotes about yeah. how they connected to the maze the study mm. of the life, saying what would it if I was the one with the maze, what would the maze do <laughs> yeah. me? You know, and, and, uh, there was a Japanese um, researcher who did the same with a study of squid, mm. and he came to this incredible discovery by putting himself in the place of the squid. What would it be like to be <laughs> if I was a squid? <laughs> yeah. But um, I love that sense about how can we can study something in a way that is not so violent and not so detached and object supposedly objective rational logical analytical critical is there another way that we can uh, you know balance all those things with the kind of tender gentle uh, connection to what we're what we're studying and often that is other human beings
0: yeah yeah I think it's happening I think your text points to it uh, and others are pointing to it that's why I'm so excited to have this conversation. With you, just to kind of honor Arthur Zeance um, and that kind of wonderful um, uh, phrasing of and uh, framing of uh, gentle empiricism, mm-hmm. and and he he taught you know his his book "A uh, contemplative qualitative inquiry, I, I'm using it right now actually. Ah. This idea of um, like through meditation on a specific object of knowledge, when 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 objectivity becomes knowing as, as when you, when you get close when you get close enough to the object in terms of developing a relationship and a sense of intimacy, that's when you know, uh, or you can arrive to know the object, but it requires a level of intimacy and closeness. Yeah. Yeah. There, and then the role of love in that process, yeah. like uh, when meditation becomes knowing when the process of getting to know the object, you fall in love with the object. So, you know, in a sense, like it's, there is a kind of romantic a feel to the pursuit of knowledge and, and, and studying. So it's, I just love him. For the the poetry that he brings to just yeah. hardcore questions of, of science and research,
2: and that expression, the epistemology of love. Yes, it's like a taboo in our <laughs> <laughs> academic environments to talk about love. So we can use words like compassion. Maybe it's yeah is acceptable now. But, uh, yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And there, and I think I think the conditions we're under. I think you you allude to there's a little bit in the book around the society being sick and that sickness. I mean, I, I think uh, we could use word sickness or even just disequilibrium. There's a serious level of disequilibrium right now, uh, ge- geologically, kind of environmentally in terms of our ability to steward, being, to be stewards of the, this planet yeah. in a way that can sustain uh, its carrying capacity. And then politically, you know, the, and, and, and economically, there are these other ways in which the planet is a little bit um um you know kind of a mess um yeah you know but i think that selective pressure of the current moment is is, is giving rise to your voice for example and the voice of um uh earthlin and others and and arthur who 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 have done the work of sitting really intently and intentionally to see how we can might see diff- things differently
2: yeah I think it's you know it's not a are um, the, voices that can easily be drowned out by other kinds of <laughs> more interests corporate military militaristic and all kinds of you know business interests but I I think and it there's a temptation to look for a magic pill you know magic yeah. or an instant cure which is that's where I'm really inspired by the work of Grace Lee Boggs who was yes. an activist for so many years and. Just kept telling, you know, the, giving the message that there's no magic cure here. You've got to go out and really put in the work, and the work's got to be done with compassion and patience, and you've got to just put in the the time. You got to put in the, the the good work, and so all the, these courses that I run at Stanford are really just um, I'm I'm doing the best I can with what I've got, and it's uh, <laughs> it's really you know nobody's going to come to the lecture and just be given the the five points that are going to make them and the world a happy place but we just we have to put in the time and the work and we're together for you know hours and hours and hours and we're only going to get there by practicing and and actually doing it and being there and um, so just uh, people like that really inspire me to to keep going and to say you know the this is something valuable just for people to gather in small groups and become more human and towards some very specific goal, whether it's having a garden in inner city or whether it's just coming together and sharing stories in a way that give us more uh, hope that we can, we can continue. That's just by being together and by um, seeing, just by being with others who have that, that hope and have that, continue to have that desire despite whatever circumstances they we find ourselves in. And so I'm
0: continuing to do the work. Yeah. Yeah. Embodying it. I see, I see you, Stephen. And kind of to make that uh, connection to what you just said of that, that will to, to, to contribute. And that earlier comment you meant, you mentioned about that will to live. Um, There's a connection there. I think with the, our will to live and then our, our also desire to, to contribute and to, to make uh, the world a better place. I wanted to kind of explore just a couple more things before I um, we concluded. So just to kind of wrap up, uh, um, kind of giving folks a little more information on, on the way of heartfulness and, and that text. Um, so could you give us just a little bit of, maybe a concluding uh, thoughts on like the this idea around heartfulness. Yeah, so I see it as partly a reaction to an
2: overemphasis on the, the way in which we can make our lives and other people's lives better through our willpower, mm. through, through our minds, through our intelligence that we consider to be very you know, um, rational, analytical type of, of brain power and that we can just will ourselves to something that is really beyond our control. Yeah. And uh, I believe we have to continue to feel, as we struggle for mastery, we have to continue to trust that there is in the mystery of life and what we cannot control, and that <clears throat> there is going to be ways in which we can, you know, assert ourselves on our environment and to do the best w- with what we can with our willpower. But there are also going to be moments that we have to recognize in which we need to let go. Mm. We need to surrender. We need to say that uh, I am not in complete control at this moment. Uh, life is, is giving me some situation now. here. That, you know, To turn in the sense from what uh, Viktor Frankl talked about when he said who were the people who survived mm. the, you know, concentration camps, he said they changed their question from what do I want from life to what does life want from me? What is mm. life asking of me now? How, how have I, what have I been chosen for? Uh, and that there are moments in life when that's the, the, the best response is to say, I am not in control. Mm. I've got to also accept what I've been chosen for. And now, how can I do the best with that? And that, that sense of dancing between, uh, you know, how we exert our willpower and how we are willing to serve. And I think a lot of that, uh, the willingness part is often that we recognize that the best thing that we can do to be alive is to serve. And to, mm. to be responsible not just for our own life but to feel responsible for the lives of others and you know so many people have taught us for so long that the way that they lived under the most difficult circumstances mm. was that they felt that they could live by giving themselves to others mm. it wasn't just for their own life that they could give themselves and you know, to some cause, they could see that mm. just giving themselves to something beyond beyond their own individual self was a way of finding meaning and fulfillment in life. And so to me, that's the basis of, of heartfulness is that it goes outside of that, that very narrow constraint of what's good for me to the reality that maybe the best way I can live is just, or the only way I can live is by dedicating my life to what some people would call God, but I'm mm. thinking other people... Would use other words, right? What yeah. the, to the universe? What the universe is asking from me? What is life asking from me? And that's the way I can live, despite all these things that are other things that are happening to me. I can find the will to live here.
0: Yes, yes, yes. And kind of reminds me of uh, as I was preparing for this conversation. You know, I was thinking about what does it mean to think about heart, uh, heartfulness as a vehicle for healing, or healing through heartfulness. So that's a, that's a conversation for you and I to continue Okay. at, at some point. This is a this is a, seeding, a seeding conversation. And the last thing I wanted to talk to you about, because you, you, wrote, a, you wrote a really uh, provocative book that gave me a lot of ideas titled Synergy, Healing, and Empowerment with uh, Richard Katz. And I just wanted to surface one concept from that book, even though that's a whole other conversation. But this idea of synergy, I think it's really important for folks to to sit with this idea of synergy but also synergy as a renewable resource.
2: Well, it really came out of my it's really the work of Richard Katz but it, in his work, you know, connects to many other people but the way I learned it was that uh we're both in this very rigid um American concept of how do we how do you help other people? Yeah. yeah and the people like us who had like 10 years of training in universities and hospitals mm-hmm. and clinics and you know and we would meet one person for 50 minutes and uh the days goes day goes by and how many people could you possibly meet that the realization of what what that meant in terms of the world's struggles with depression anxiety and all kinds of other you know problems that, that plague people around the world uh, it really meant that uh, we had to learn from indigenous societies about how do people, how can you possibly, you know, serve the mental health needs of, of large populations. And that's where we you know really focus on this idea of synergy and that people like us really needed to be more in the role of consultants and facilitators for uh, larger groups of people to uh, be able to come together in ways in which, there was a, a a renewable source of healing, which is the sharing of stories. Yeah, and so what you see in all these cultures of people coming together in circles, you could do that here as well, and that mm. you could do that, and you see that in you know all the self help groups that you see around the world of people coming together with that limited resource. There's not mm. an expert there. There's not a guru. Mm. There's somebody who f- simply facilitates it and allows. Everyone to contribute the, the best mm. to what they can with their own story, listening to other stories, and the sharing of that is often what people need. Right? They come yeah. together and they say, "Wow, thank you for sharing your story," and they get something out of it, and then they go their their ways throughout life. But that, um, I think, that model—you know—we clearly need a synergistic paradigm as opposed to a scarcity paradigm, which yeah. is what it would be if people like us were had to be relied on for the for caring for large populations. And I think that's um a a direction obviously we have to go and can be guided by uh remembering, remembering what people have learned throughout his human history and still practice in many parts of the world. This is uh to learn from them about how healing can really be done in
0: communities and
2: societies.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. I want to close just by acknowledging um, this idea that it's interesting that right when in this moment we are struggling with so many different things in regards to finding a sense of harmony, Mm. we are in desperate need of the knowledge and ways of being of many of the communities we historically tried to erase. Yeah. Yeah. And I just think that it's important to acknowledge that, that the very epistemologies, the very ways of being of communities we tried to exterminate and in large part colonize, yeah. uh, we now need the most. So just just a, a acknowledging that. Any closing thoughts or, or, or remarks?
2: I just like to, to emphasize that whole idea of the mastery and the mystery that is mm-hmm. more and more towards a, Thinking we can control things with artificial intelligence and with, uh, you know, our technologies and transformative technologies and, you know, the more that they certainly have the power to contribute to, to what we're doing, but there's also a danger there. And you know, mm-hmm. there's a, a continual need to keep reconnecting as, as human beings. And that uh, that's the, and to trust in the, the mystery, to trust that, that in each other, to trust just in the universe that that reassurance that everything's going to be all right and uh, we can't otherwise we're paralyzed by what's all that's happening around us that we've got to keep moving with the, with hope and the only way I find t- to do that is when I get together with people like you get, get mm-hmm. to you, people who share that haven't given up and, and really want to be alive and want to help others to be alive to just to keep moving
0: yeah yeah well I promise to take the, the synergistic energy that we generated uh, to put it to good use uh thank you so much Stephen. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next time great thank
2: you